Hi, I'm Morgan Goulet, a licensed marriage and family therapist. I work as a therapist in private practice and also serve as a clinical trainer for a nonprofit organization where I develop curriculum and provide trainings to staff and the community. My hope with this podcast is to decrease stigma around mental health and substance use and encourage a more open and honest conversation. We're all human and we've all experienced our own struggles, so let's talk about it. And I'm Whitney Hodak, a working professional in Los Angeles, California. I struggle with my own mental health and I'm just curious about mental health in general. On this podcast, I'll be the layman to Morgan's expertise. This podcast is an exploration into common mental health issues. While Morgan is a trained and licensed therapist and the advice and conversation may be useful and relatable to you, your own personal experience should be advised and guided by your own mental health care provider. Take it away. Hello, and welcome to Emotional Curiosity. We're going to be talking about substance use today. Substance use and abuse. Yes, use and abuse. (laughs) Mostly abuse, though. Yes, primarily abuse. So my first question is, what causes substance abuse? Yes, that's a very complicated question, or a complicated answer, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's not necessarily one thing that causes substance abuse, Um, There's lots of different factors. Um, So there is genetic components um, that have been shown to be a factor. There's twin studies and family studies that do show that there is, you know, genetic um, variables involved. But just because you have someone in your family that has a substance use problem doesn't mean that you are necessarily also going to have that. Um, There are also environmental factors, right? So depending on your family environment, um, history of trauma, your actual environment that you were raised in, so the neighborhood, socioeconomic status of your family, all of those things can be contributing factors, the resources that you have, you know, availability to in your community, all of those things. Um, Also mental health issues, Um, you know, it's often a way that people cope with any sort of mental health struggles that they might be having, either, you know, with that knowledge or without that knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, so lots of different factors uh, contribute. So there's not just one answer um, and everything kind of works together a bit. So let's break this down um, into the two things that you mentioned then. I actually was not aware that the um, sort of genetic or predisposition component of this was has been proven in that type mm-hmm. of thing. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I sure can. Um, So yes, there's been lots of studies. You know, this is a pretty um, well-researched topic, right? Because people do want to know what exactly it is. And um, there's not that clear answer. But there have been a lot of family studies and a lot of twin um, studies that have been done uh, that show basically that particularly in early in your life, there is a really strong genetic component. So for use of nicotine, alcohol, weed, pretty much every substance they have identified that it is a factor. So the more closely related you are to someone that has a substance use disorder, the more, the higher your chances essentially are of also having a substance use disorder. Um, so they've, you know, done studies where there's two twins and, you know, they either both have one, they don't, or they live, they grow up separately, you know, and they still both develop substance use disorders, those types of things. Mm. Uh, but Again, it's not like 100% guarantee. So it is just right. a component, a potential part of the puzzle, basically. So if you know that you have this in your sort of family history, it may just be something that you as an individual may want to pay attention to. Yes, absolutely. And I think especially, you know, 
something that happened in my family, you know, growing up, um, there's a lot of substance use in, in my own family. And so something that my parents did was like make me aware of that from a very young age. They talked to me about it a lot, about mm-hmm. the fact that I was at higher risk, um, what that, you know, what sorts of things I should pay attention to and be careful about. Okay, so I have a question about that. If your family is telling you like, hey, this is a, this is a, a trend in our family, does that make you... Or did that make you personally interact with um, substance or engage with substance differently? Were you freaked out by that? Or you're like, oh my gosh, if I have a drink or if I do this party drug? I wish that I could say yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But no, it didn't. Um, Yeah, I was not a very responsible drinker Mm. (laughs) when I first started drinking um, in high school and college. And so... I had the awareness and I did recognize, you know, there were points in my life where I was definitely, my drinking was problematic. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I did recognize that at that time um, and that concerned me, Mm -hmm. but I, it didn't necessarily change the way that I approach substances, but for a lot of people it does. Right. And I think just having those open, honest conversations about it is important and also helps to kind of break down some of the stigma that surrounds substance use as well. Yeah. So when people refer to it as a disease, mm-hmm. that is accurate. Yes, mm-hmm. it is. Um, so in 2016, actually, the Surgeon General at the time came out and basically declared that substance use disorder is a chronic disease, um, just like diabetes or you know any other disease. And there are a lot of similarities between the way that someone with another chronic disease like diabetes um, struggles throughout their life with substance use. Um, So, you know, relapse relapse rates are pretty similar. Um, The lifelong kind of maintenance of that or approach to recovery, um, there's lots of different things that that relate. And so it is a disease and there's also changes in the brain Mm -hmm. that are happening. Um, So it's not just a, a moral failing, which it used to be considered. Talk about the changes in the brain. Yes. So there are lots of things mm-hmm. that happen in the brain. Uh, but basically the the biggest part, I think, of or the big takeaway, I guess, when you're thinking of any sort of addiction is really just dopamine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, dopamine is one of the neurotransmitters in our brain that makes us feel good and, you know, pleasurable and all of those things. And so essentially any sort of alcohol or substance that you're taking Um, is releasing a bunch of dopamine into your brain. So um, that makes us feel good, right? Mm -hmm. So we have a drink, we start to relax or feel happy or whatever it might be. um, And that's because of that dopamine. So it's impacting what's called the reward system in your brain. So any sort of addictive substance or really activity um, can release up to two to 10 times more dopamine than natural rewarding things do like eating, sex. Um, So that's part of the puzzle, right, of what makes or can make things become addictive um, in our brains. Um, Also, um, over time, basically, your brain gets used to that level of dopamine. So you use a substance, it feels good, you use it again, your brain starts to get used to that level of dopamine. And so then you don't feel as much pleasure when you are engaging with normal activities as well. And so over time, with chronic use, you're developing a dopamine deficiency um, in your brain. 
that is fascinating and so <laughs> scary. It is very scary. Um, and there are a lot of other things alongside that that also happen in our brain. Dopamine is just kind of, I think, the the main one that we think about. Um, but there are things happening in our basal ganglia, our prefrontal cortex, our extended amygdala, our brain stem, like lots of different parts of our brain are being <laughs> impacted. Um, and so... It doesn't mean that just be, if you're drinking casually or, um, you know, smoking weed casually or things like that, that your brain is going to be permanently damaged or anything like that. But if you are using substances consistently, then it does start to impact basically the way that your neurotransmitters are, you know, the amount of neurotransmitters that you're creating and then also the way that your neurons are communicating in your brain. Wow. Okay. I, I really want to come back to that. But before we lose the earlier thread, uh, mm-hmm. we talked about genetic predisposition. Let's talk about environmental impacts Yes, that contribute to substance abuse. So there's lots of different things, right? Oftentimes, people who have some sort of substance use disorder have experienced trauma in their life. Um, that could be a single traumatic event. That could be chronic trauma, um, but that oftentimes that is a factor uh, for individuals that are struggling with some sort of, you know, substance use issue. Um, so that is something, whether it's childhood trauma, um, something that happens in adulthood, whatever it might be. Um, also, family relationships can have a really big impact. So what was the environment like in your household? How did people communicate? Do you have positive relationships with family members? Are things not great with family members? Uh, Was there fighting, you know, in the household? All of those types of things. Um, And then, like, the way that you view yourself, too. Mm -hmm. Um, So that could be, like we've talked about previously with just kind of perfectionism and things. Like, that could be just something that you kind of have created based on whatever's going on. Or it could be something that's coming from external factors, right? A lot of pressure from parents or bullying or, you know, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Um, So lots of different environmental components. Um, And I also mentioned it depends on kind of like the area that you grew up to. Like, is there easier access to substances? Are there actual like community resources and like after school programs and things that, you know, kids can do? Um, It's actually been shown that um, areas that have those types of activities, there's lower rates of substance use. And so, you know, people who are in low-income areas are going to be more likely to develop substance use disorders because of just the environment that they're in and the lack of resources that are available. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned trauma, and I just wanted to see if we could sort of define that because trauma may be different for any uh, from person to person. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, when I think of trauma, I think of something like bad, intense, like... Yeah you know, rape or assault or things like that. But I think perhaps trauma is a broader yes term. That's a really good point. And I think that your view of trauma is how most people think of trauma, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but really what we kind of view or define, I guess, trauma as in the mental health community is any sort of event or situation that overwhelms your ability to cope. Mm-hmm. Um, so that could be rape or some sort of abuse, of course, but It could also be things like really high stress at work um, or a stressful home environment, parents fighting, a divorce, um, Mm -hmm. an illness, you know, lots of different things. And trauma is person specific. So what could be traumatic to me Mm -hmm. might not be traumatic to you. Right. 
Okay, so earlier we were talking about the effect that substance abuse has on your brain. And my my question is, is that long-term, the, the it sounds like damage, mm-hmm. um, can it be reversed? And if so, how much time does that take? And what do you do to start that process? Very good questions. <laughs> um, also a complicated answer. So... The short answer is yes, it can be reversed depending on several factors, right? How old you were when you started using. So our brain doesn't fully develop until approximately age 25. Mm. Um, so the younger you are when you start using, obviously the, the larger impact it's going to have on your brain um, and also how long you were using too, right? So if I started using at age 12 and then I didn't stop till 30, that's going to be a pretty significant impact on my brain. Um, there have been studies though that do show that basically if you stop using, right, you stop mm-hmm. using whatever substance uh, you were using, changes can start to take place in your brain within a month. Um, and then within 14 months, um, they have shown that dopamine transporter levels in the reward system or circuit of your brain uh, start to return to nearly normal functioning. So there is the possibility for your brain to recover. Um, That doesn't mean that there's no impact at all, right? And that doesn't mean that every single person's brain is going to fully recover, but it is possible. What kind of work do you need to do to start that? I mean, just stopping the the use of the substance is Mm -hmm. useful right off the bat, but then it sounds like you probably need to do some other things. Yeah. I mean, as far as the brain goes, um, and we, I'm sure can talk about this at a later episode, just the impact also of trauma in the brain and how you can kind of heal your brain from that. But, um, part of it is just stopping. So that will have a big impact in itself, just sobriety. Uh, but then another part, if you're going to make further changes, um, in your brain is really engaging in some sort of therapy or supportive process, Mm -hmm. uh, whatever that looks like for you, ideally therapy, um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because stopping, you know, with substances is really challenging. Uh, but a lot of people benefit just from like an AA or NA type of community, um, as well. And so it really depends on what was, you know, kind of behind that substance use or that underlying, um, trigger for you to start abusing the substance. Yeah. Are you able to talk about what what is happening to your brain while you sort of talk through these issues with another person? Um, not really. Okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like on a basis, like a basics level, basically you can kind of re-circuit the neurons in your brain, essentially. So like the way that your brain is communicating. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not just like one specific thing that's happening it's going to be a little bit different for for every person but that's like kind of the basic of what you're doing in therapy is you're starting to kind of rewire you know essentially Mm -hmm. um some of those those circuits in that communication and maybe think about things differently start to process things differently exactly i guess the root of the question is if somebody is like yeah well i stopped i stopped drinking i stopped using drugs Mm mm-hmm I'm done now. What would be the impetus for them to continue to engage in their recovery in a different way? I think it again kind of goes back to like, well, what was the contributing factor to that substance use? Mm -hmm. And are those things still present? Right. Um, And also like 
how did the substance use impact your life, your relationships, um, the people around you? Because if you're in a place where you have a substance use disorder and you aren't really functioning without that substance, or even if you're, you know, what they call like, quote unquote, like a functioning alcoholic or a functioning whatever substance you're using, um, you there's something, there's something else going on, right? Like there's a reason why you started to use that substance. Like I mentioned, obviously some people are going to be more at risk for developing that addiction, but what is the underlying factor? Um, is there, what sorts of feelings are coming up for you? Mm -hmm. Anger, sadness, fear, again, trauma that Mm -hmm. hasn't been addressed. And so stopping the substance is great, but there's also more work that needs to be done. Generally speaking in the all likelihood that you were using that substance to cope somehow. Right. And now how do you do that without it? Right. Which even if you didn't start using, cause no one's, no one goes into their life planning to form an addiction, right? No one's like, you know what I really want to do when I grow up is be an alcoholic. Like that's not how people start with their substance use journey. Um, but at some point it does become that coping mechanism. So even if you're not, let's say there was like a perfect upbringing, perfect childhood, no trauma, no issues, nothing. Um, it eventually you're using that substance that you're drinking, right? Mm-hmm. You start drinking socially, you drink more, you drink more. And that becomes the way that like now you de-stress after work. And now it's the way if you're really upset, you have a fight, you drink or you're happy, you drink. And so that becomes the way that you're coping, even if it's not to actually cope with a quote unquote issue. Mm -hmm. And when do you think you start to realize maybe this is a problem? I mean, everyone's like different with that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Some people have to hit their like quote unquote rock bottom. Mm -hmm. Some people don't. Um, Some people never recognize it. Or even if they do, they're not in a place where they're able to or open to like stopping Mm -hmm. right and I think that that's the really scary part of addiction is that it you will ruin your life um yeah and you can die right Mm -hmm. uh because of this substance and again there's a lot of like components with the brain and everything else uh that are driving those things um but for some people it takes really losing everything and some people it can just be a conversation like hey I'm worried about your drinking or I'm worried about the fact that you're using XYZ substance and they're open to getting treatment and some people are not. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. So as we like to approach these issues as the person affected and the friend of or family of, Mm -hmm. if you're noticing or what behaviors, I guess is the question would trigger you as a friend of or family member of somebody that you think is abusing substance. Like yeah, they're not going to work anymore or they're, uh, they're not communicating with you the way they used to stuff like that. Is that, are those the red flags and anything else that you can think of? I mean, those are definitely red flags. Uh, but like I said, there are some people that get up, go to work, they do all everything, but they're still drinking all the time or abusing some other substance. Right. Um, so those are certainly red flags um, mm-hmm. to pay attention to, but also just changes in their general behavior, right? So do they seem more irritable? Um, are they having any sort of like anger outbursts over things that they normally wouldn't? Uh, do they seem depressed? Mm-hmm. Um, are they having lots of anxiety? You know, like more their emotions have changed a bit. Um, obviously, if you 
have observed them using this substance. Um, and, you know, like I think drinking is an easy one to talk about because it's a socially acceptable substance to use. Right. And so if you're noticing that someone is drinking more often, more in amount, um, drinking to like cope with a bad day, whatever it might be. Uh, paying attention to those things, but sometimes you don't see them using the substance, right? Like, mm-hmm. especially if it's, you know, not alcohol, um, they might be hiding that. Um, so if there's like withdrawal, um, like from you, not, you know, withdrawal, uh, mm-hmm. withdrawal from the substance, but mm-hmm. they're withdrawing from you as a friend or family member, shutting down and kind of shutting you out, maybe hanging out with a different crowd um, of people. Um, there's lots of things it's going to kind of depend on like what substance they're using also right so if they're using like a stimulant um then their behavior is going to be much different than if they're you know using something that is a depressant um so it would depend also on the substance as far as like specific behaviors but those are some of the more general things Mm -hmm. okay so uh let's talk about if I'm the person and I'm abusing some sort of substance and I have come to the realization on my own mm-hmm. that this is now a problem and I want to do something about it, I think like rehab facilities are notoriously very expensive and that also seems to be not an option for a vast majority of people. Mm-hmm. How can I help myself? Good question. Um, so one, it depends on kind of your current financial state, right? There are lots of nonprofits. I happen to work for one um, that have facilities that where you can either get be on Medi-Cal, uh, be uninsured, whatever it might be, and get treatment. And so there's actually no out-of-pocket costs to you. Can um, you name a few? Yes. Uh, so Phoenix House um, is one. Um, Tarzana Treatment Centers. These are in California because that's where we're located. But um, Tarzana Treatment Centers is another one. Um, so those are kind of two of the the bigger nonprofits um, in the substance use arena um, that are coming to the top of my head, at least. I'm sure there are more um, that I can certainly um, look back on and reflect on and link. Uh, but those are two big ones. So, I mean, at the one that where I work, um, if a client comes in and they don't have Medi-Cal, we'll connect them to Medi-Cal, right? So mm-hmm. uh, if they don't have any insurance, we'll work with them, get them set up with insurance, and then they're able to you know, stay with us for 30, 60, 90 days, uh, depending on kind of what is approved. Um, mm-hmm. There's also, of course, the private insurance route. If you do have private insurance, uh, typically that is a shorter approved stay. Um, so you may be approved for seven days, 14 days. Sometimes you'll get 30, um, kind of depends on the insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course like private pay, which is what you're referring to. And I think that's kind of like the general view of what, you know, rehab looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and for our listeners, you work at which facility? I work at Phoenix house, California. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So that, uh, that's helpful and probably like a little Google search or something yes. would would help people get in the right direction as well. And then is there an appropriate or more effective timeline to be in a rehab facility? Meaning like how long you're there? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that minimum 30 days is needed. Honestly, if people could go for like six months, yeah, <laughs> I think that would be great. Uh, but obviously, that's not often feasible for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think minimum 30 days, like I said, sometimes insurance isn't going to approve that, right? And so you usually have, you know, inpatient level of care, and then you can go down to outpatient. Um, so just because maybe your insurance only proved 
seven days, which unfortunately happens. Um, Mm -hmm. And you are still obviously struggling (laughs) with your substance use after a week um, in an inpatient facility. You can then go down to their intensive outpatient. So you're going to groups multiple times a week. Um, You maybe have individual therapy. You could be going to some sort of like AA, NA meeting if that's something that appeals to you. And it's often kind of part of the requirement of the program too. Um, So there are options as well. But If I was the creator of insurance Mm -hmm. (laughs) and all of these approval processes, I would make it a minimum 30 days. Yeah. And is it typical for people to show up at rehab um, still on whatever substance they've been using? Oftentimes, yes. Not to to suggest that they're like high or drunk at the time, but they have. (laughs) Sometimes they are. But that they have not done their own tapering or whatever process needs to happen yes so oftentimes that does happen and so depending on like what substance you're using you may have to go through detox first so you go to a detox you know uh treatment op center uh or potentially the rehab that you're at has their own detox facility uh, because you do need to be medically supervised um, when you're withdrawing from some substances. Mm -hmm. Um, And oftentimes what will happen is if someone knows like they're planning to go into rehab, they'll kind of do like a last hoorah and, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of go a little bit wild, um, use a bunch. And I have had many times (laughs) where clients come in uh, for their intake and they're super, they're just high out of their minds or drunk or whatever. Um, And so that definitely does happen. How long is the detox process? That depends on the substance that mm-hmm. you've been using. Um, anywhere from a couple of days to a week, usually. Mm-hmm. But not like a month. No, no, not like a month. You just kind of have to get through. That doesn't mean that your body and like your brain aren't withdrawing, but you're not, you're not in need of that medical level detox care. Yeah, because when you're going through intense detox like that, it could have negative effects on your body you could go into some sort of medical yeah you could start yes exactly so you need like an actual trained professional to be supervising that Mm -hmm. Um, like things like alcohol also um, things like Xanax if you you know develop an addiction to that um, that can be a really dangerous withdrawal um, process so you know those sorts of things do need to be medically supervised essentially Mm -hmm. So you've done that process, you've gone through detox, you've gone through rehab, let's say you were able to get that 30 days, you're feeling good, but now you've been dropped out into the world again. Mm -hmm. What next? Yeah, I think that that is one of the harder transitions, right? Because you can be in such a good place and then... Hopefully, the program that you're at um, helps connect you with some sort of sober living facility um, or, you know, like I said, outpatient where you're still getting that support, whether it's, you know, their outpatient facility or another um, outpatient near your home. Um, But really trying to maintain some level of routine and engagement in treatment, whatever that looks like, right? So whether that's going to intensive outpatient, whether that's going to AA, NA, whatever other substance meeting, um, having to like going to individual therapy, some level of support is needed. Um, and I think particularly if you were using the substance and it caused you maybe to become unemployed, you know, maybe, uh, strained a lot of relationships in your life, things like that. Um, I would highly recommend going into some sort of sober living facility because you're going to have other people there that are going through similar things, right? Then you can kind of form that support system. And that's so beneficial and important for for everyone, but especially if you're going through that sort of transition. Yeah, because it can be 
a fairly isolating experience, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And oftentimes all of your friends that you had were also using substances, right? So if you're trying to abstain from using substances, then you can't really hang out with them or spend time with them uh, because it's really triggering and dangerous for you. And so you now are out in the world and you potentially have no friends to rely on. Your family hopefully is supportive, but they may not be. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you can feel really alone. And then, of course, there are the programs AA, which is Alcoholics Anonymous, and NA, which is Narcotics Anonymous, that have regular meetings that you can find for their support as well. Yeah, there's tons of meetings. You can literally just Google, you know, AA or NA. Um, There's lots of also other anonymous types meetings, so kind of whatever one you're interested in. But um, you can Google, and there will come up lists of meetings near you. There are also now, like, Zoom meetings that happen, too, uh, because of COVID. So um, that's an option. Some people don't like the AANA type of approach, and that's okay. Uh, But I do recommend just giving it a shot and trying it out because, again, you can get that support. Um, If you're involved in that community, then you, you know, get a sponsor. And so you have, like, that consistent person that you can also call um, if you're feeling triggered or or having a a difficult day or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. So those are things that you can do for yourself. What if you are the friend or family member of somebody that you're noticing has a substance abuse issue. Yeah, I think this is so hard. And I have experience with this personally. And I've also witnessed, you know, a lot of people in my life struggle through how to support Mm -hmm. um, this person while still supporting themselves, right? And I think oftentimes, you lose yourself a bit. Um, I think especially something that I've witnessed is if you're a parent, you know, a lot of like blame Mm -hmm. um, and shame comes up. And so my first recommendation would be to see a therapist um, and talk to someone about it because it's really, really challenging Mm -hmm. um, to try to come to terms with like what's happening. And especially if your loved one is in a place where they're not in treatment and they're not seeking treatment, um, it's scary because you don't know what's going to happen to them. Right. And yeah, I similarly have experience with this with somebody very close to me as well. And by my own admission, I'm pretty straight edge and have (laughs) not, I just like didn't have any experience with um, other people that were doing drugs or, Mm -hmm. I mean, of course alcohol, but that is so mainstream that it's, it's sometimes hard to tell like, Hey, you have a problem. Um, so a lot of this activity was sort of happening un unbeknownst to me. And I was just like, you are not great to be around, but I don't really know what your problem is. Mm-hmm. Um, so identifying it is tricky. Well, it was for me. Right. Uh, and I, and it wasn't until this, this person actually said like, this is what's been going on and I have a problem and mm-hmm. was willing to take care of that and address it and get into rehab. Right. Um, which I think ultimately, if you're an ally of this person, no matter what you say to them or how you try to guide them, if you're recognizing some sort of sub- substance abuse, until they get to that decision by themselves, there will not be change. Yeah. So you do need to be as much of an ally as you can. But as you mentioned, like, find a way to protect yourself because watching someone self-destruct in that way is 
very hard. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel comfortable sharing anything that like helped you do that? I think that I was, um, maybe I don't want to say I was in denial, but just was like, Oh, okay. Well that's crazy, but you're in rehab now. Mm-hmm. It's going well. Okay. Compartmentalized. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And my experience, like the rehab did work, um, with this person, it's the underlying issue that mm-hmm. caused the abuse in the first place, which is ongoing and is very difficult for me to manage as somebody that loves this person and wants to see change for them and wants to help them get out of this place. Yeah. Uh, but it is, it's a real personal experience and I don't understand all of it. And so I, have started talking to my therapist about it too because it is it's just really hard yeah it is really hard because I think like you said that person has to be in a place where they're ready right Mm -hmm. um and so like when we're looking at the stages of change um there are different levels at which doesn't mean that someone's like resistant and doesn't want to change but we all have kind of I guess, uncomfortableness, that's not really a word, but Mm -hmm. we all feel uncomfortable with change, right? And it's scary. And so we all kind of go back and forth on even just like, I want to eat healthier, you know, something as simple as that. And so when you put in all of the other components of like the changes that are happening in the brain, potential trauma or whatever it might be that triggered that abuse to then make that change is hard. And so being able to provide consistent support to that person and let them know, Hey, I'm here for you Mm -hmm. while also maintaining boundaries, um, Mm -hmm. to protect yourself is like a very, very tricky thing. And that's, I think people oftentimes either just kind of go into complete denial of the fact that it's an issue, um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because it's too much Mm -hmm. to deal with, or they kind of cut them off or they maybe enable that behavior you know Mm -hmm. there's there's different things that can happen but finding a place where and of course is going to depend on kind of what that person is doing as well Mm -hmm. um and how harmful they may or may not be being to you specifically Uh, but being able to let them know like I am here for you but I also this behavior is not okay Mm -hmm. and I'm concerned about you and drawing some sort of boundary so that you can take care of yourself. Yeah. And I think the, the boundary thing is so important and it's hard to wrap your head around sometimes because I'll just speak for myself. Like there's a level of guilt that you feel if you're not a hundred percent available all the time Mm -hmm. when that person is going through a moment where they need somebody, but, um, potentially some of that constant availability is enabling. Um, and also, it is that person, it is up to them to institute real change. Yeah. And you can just get kind of railroaded if you're constantly along for the ride, but not seeing any changes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tricky dance. I don't know the steps. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And it's also, it's, um, you know, it's so interesting to watch the other people in your life interact 
with this individual. We all handle it so differently. And then we get into this place of like judging each other for, we really shouldn't be doing that. Oh, you're enabling. Oh, you're not loving enough. You know, like, (laughs) really takes us all down. Yeah, it does. And I don't think that there's, I mean, obviously to different degrees, but I in every family, there's at least one person who has struggled with some sort of substance use issue, whether it's a parent, a sibling, a cousin, like whatever it might be there. It's a huge issue throughout our country and throughout the world, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it is sad that it becomes so divisive um, because Mm -hmm. it's something that really all of us have experience with on some level. Yeah, and I think the part that makes it so divisive sometimes is just the lack of understanding of what's going on. Yes. And we all have such busy lives that stopping down to really do the research and dive into mm-hmm. like what is this what is this process? What is this person going through? Why are they behaving this way? And why can't they just stop? Yeah. Um so I've found it's it's very helpful to have a professional who understands all of that if, you know, if you can find a therapist to talk you through that and help you get a bit of understanding of what the person in your life that's abusing substances is going through and what you can and cannot have an impact on. Right. It's, it's a bit of a relief to Mm -hmm. have, you know, knowledge is power as they say. Yes. I mean, yeah. And it kind of goes back to what we're talking about of that. It is a chronic disease. Right. Right. And so, being able to really understand what is happening in the brain and what could have contributed to this can take a lot of those feelings of like guilt or shame that you may be feeling. And also it gives you a better level of, I guess, understanding and empathy, you know, for what they're going through where I think we still, even though we kind of know and recognize, or a lot of people, not, I guess everyone recognizes that substance use is a disease. We still talk about it or view it in a way of like a moral thing like why why are they doing this why wouldn't they just stop why are you know and yeah even as a professional that knows these things like when I have had family members engaging in this behavior it is it's like what the fuck like (laughs) it's really (laughs) frustrating yeah Yeah. it's frustrating and it's scary and that's I think where a lot of that comes from because you're scared because this person could potentially die yeah Yeah, well, it's a different kind of disease. You're actively putting something inside of your body as opposed to something that is already existing inside your body that you don't really have any control over. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's it makes sense that it's hard to wrap your head around that. Yeah, it feels like they're making the choice to do that, right? Which on some level, of course, they are. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, like there are a lot of there are a lot of things that lead up to that level of substance abuse. And mm-hmm. so at that point, it's they don't probably want to be doing it either for mm-hmm. most, you know, for at least 100 mm-hmm. percent. Um, but it's the only thing that makes them feel normal, essentially, or feel anything or not feel anything if that's kind of their aim. But and as far as the brain goes, like that's the only thing that can provide dopamine mm-hmm. and their brain has basically rewired itself to like you're compulsively seeking that out and so you don't necessarily always feel like you have control over the fact that you're you know using the substance right and as you mentioned earlier once you go through if you're um addicted to something and then you go through the process of coming clean uh 
you really do sort of lose your community and in your experience um, helping patients and clients come through this process, where have you found that they have found a new, you kind of have to have a new community, a yeah. new group. Cause maybe all of the people from your past, they may not understand your choices going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, like I said, going to some sort of support group or meeting, if you do go to rehab or inpatient facility, you know, you could meet people there potentially, um, trying to get engaged in activities that new activities that you like. Mm-hmm. Um, so I encourage clients to, you know, sign up for like some sort of, um, you know, like adult sports team or mm-hmm. go to like a pottery class or like whatever you're interested in, seek out some sort of activity that you can do because there's also going to be other people that are interested in those things there. Um, and there are also a lot of those types of things, particularly like sports and gyms and things like that for people who are also sober. Mm-hmm. Um, so trying to develop friendships with people who are also going through their own sobriety journey because they have that that level of understanding. Yeah, I'm imagining as like a younger person that the the concept of like a nightlife just feels like, well, that's not an option for me anymore. Yeah. And I think that's something that at least with when I was working with adolescents, um, I worked at an inpatient facility with adolescents um, with substance use disorders and mental health issues. And uh, that was, I think, one of the more challenging things was that they can't just necessarily escape their peers like adults can, right? Like mm-hmm. I can just choose to not engage with those people. Um, but these kids have to go back to school with those people, right? Mm-hmm. And there are, unfortunately, in a lot of high schools, at least not everyone, I'm sure, but a lot of high schools, there are drugs everywhere. Um, and yeah, so you're and colleges just, too. Right. You're constantly triggered. You're going through this experience where maybe you go to rehab when you're 14 or 15 Mm -hmm. and then yeah you go to college and everyone's partying everyone's drinking everyone's doing drugs on the weekends and like what are you supposed to do Mm -hmm. um and so it can feel very very isolating and i think that that is a really challenging not that it's not challenging at any other age but that's a particularly challenging and unique time to be trying to maintain sobriety Mm -hmm. if you're a friend of a person in recovery and you recognize that your former life was circulating around a lot of behavior that they can't engage in anymore. Mm -hmm. If you can help them by not always making them think of the thing that you guys can do together that doesn't involve drinking or drugs, that's great. Mm -hmm. That, that is a great show of support to the person that has been struggling with this and doesn't want to be alone in that. Absolutely. Um, yes. And I think to your point, like just because you get out of rehab doesn't mean you have to throw away every single friendship you had, right? Like there are going to be, hopefully, um, some people who are very open and supportive to your sobriety. And one of the ways they can do that is, yeah, instead of maybe you used to go get drinks at the bar, you know, and that's what you did to hang out. Now you can go to dinner or go on a hike or Mm -hmm. I don't know, watch a movie, you know, lots of other things, obviously. And so being the person to reach out and like plan that especially early on in mm-hmm. their recovery uh, can show a lot of support and also help that person feel like they do have people that care about them. Yeah. Super helpful. Yeah. Okay. So that is, that takes us through sort of the broad strokes of substance abuse, but we'd like to leave you with a few places that you can look for help. Yes. Yeah, so uh, one of the biggest ones is SAMHSA, which is S-A-M-H-S-A. Um, so Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. 
Uh, so you can find treatment centers there. You can find information there. Um, there's helplines um, that you can call there. So lots of really, really great um, resources on their website. There's also also um, NAMI, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. So N-A-M-I. Um, they also have information about other, you know, mental health issues as well as um, substance use. And then uh, National Institute on Drug Abuse. Um, so several different resources and there are of course lots of there's tons of information that if you're just looking for general information uh, but those are the main ones that I would recommend great well we'll see you on the next episode of emotional curiosity see you then